For Gabrielle Chanel, reading was a refuge which allowed her to invent her own destiny right from childhood. Literature became a passion she shared with the love of her life, Boy Capel, and her friends like Cocteau Colette, Pierre Riverdi, and Max Jacob. She helped the authors she admired without them knowing. She had the story of her life told by Paul Morand, Louise de Villemorin, and Michel Dion. She read for inspiration and then became an inspiration herself. Watch the film Gabrielle Chanel and Literature at InsideChanel.com. She really was pushing boundaries for women and for herself as a woman, and I think she was breaking barriers as to what that mold should or could look like. Hi, I'm Andrew Goldstein, and this is The Art Angle, a podcast from Artnet News where the art world meets the real world, bringing each week's biggest story down to earth. Today, Frida Kahlo is one of the most famous artists in modern history, a painter whose work has set the record price for any Latin American artist at auction, whose self-portraits are the inspiration for a thousand smartphone filters, dorm room posters, and swag of all kinds, and whose tumultuous life story has made her catnip for dramatization in everything from the blockbuster 1992 biopic Frida to Pixar's Coco to most recently a memorable turn in HBO's Lovecraft Country. Born in Mexico City in 1907, she began painting herself at the age of 18 while convalescing from a traumatic bus accident that left her hobbled for life, but did nothing to restrain her volcanic passion for living, an omnivorous appetite for experience that led to her tortured marriage with the philandering artistic genius Diego Rivera, celebrity-studded affairs of her own, and, above all, a body of unforgettable artworks that are by turns grotesque, vulnerable, and sublime, but always unmistakably Frida. Although she died in 1954 at just 47 years old, Frida Kahlo's art and legacy have continued to inspire people around the globe in the decades since. One person she has particularly inspired is Ariana Davis, a journalist and digital director of Oprah Winfrey's O Magazine, who has just come out with a fascinating book called what Would Frida Do? A Guide to Living Boldly. Built upon the idea that Frida's life can be used as a model to improve one's own, it is, in a word, a self-help book. But would you really want to do what Frida did? To find out, I am very happy to have Ariana Davis on the show today. Thank you very much for coming on The Art Angle, Ariana. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited for this conversation. So right now, I'm holding in my hands a copy of your book, what Would Frida Do? A Guide to Living Boldly. It's not your typical art history book, to put it mildly. Where did this idea to channel this famous artist for her self-help guidance come from? It's funny. The process kind of happened a little backwards for me in that I've been working in journalism for about 12 years now. My agent, Wendy Sherman, reached out to me at the time. She wasn't my agent yet. And she was like, hi, you know, I wanted to know if you were interested in talking. And essentially, Seal Press, which is an imprint of Hachette Books, had been having conversations around how they thought now could be a good time to publish something about Frida Kahlo for, you know, this newer generation that maybe isn't as familiar with her story. And hmm. they had been following my work and had heard through the grapevine that I was a really big Frida Kahlo fan, which you know you're a big Frida fan when like people hear through the grapevine that you are a Frida fanatic. So they basically approached me and asked if, you know, I had any interest in ever writing a book. And if so, if I would be interested in writing something about Frida and I was really intimidated by the idea of writing something about Frida or writing just like another biography. <laughs> 
there's a really famous biography of Frida by Hayden Herrera. And that's kind of known as like the most official biography of Frida. And that's what the movie that starred Salma Hayek eventually was based on. So for me, you know, I, I just was thinking about it and I was like, what do I think I could contribute to the conversation around Frida and what would I want to give readers? So I kind of started thinking and just thought that something about her and what we can learn from her and looking back at how ahead of her time she was, you know, now as women, we're finally being encouraged to live boldly, to break barriers, to push boundaries. But Frida was doing all those things way before we were being encouraged to do that. So I thought it could be really interesting to look at her life and her legacy and her art through a fresh new lens. So Frida is is famous around the world because of this really dramatic biography, but she's also famous because her art is actually spectacularly good. Picasso once told Diego Rivera that she could paint a face better than either of them. The surrealist leader Andre Breton said that her work was like, quote, a ribbon around a bomb. How, how would you characterize the art that she created? I think the ribbon around a bomb quote is is definitely so accurate. But another one was Diego Rivera, her husband, but also a fellow artist, at one point inscribed her art as hard as steel and delicate and fine as a butterfly's wing. And to me, that's so accurate because some of her art just really rips you apart when you see it. It's very raw. It's very graphic in many ways. But there is also just this delicate, fine quality to it. <laughs> she was definitely a very two-sided person. And I think that that's very apparent in her artwork and that it's, you know, at times it's masculine and feminine, at times it's graphic, but yet also sensual. There was not just one simple style for her. I think that it was all of her paintings are all very layered and show the various sides of her and also the various sides of human nature and how you can be both hard and and also vulnerable at the same time. So she's famous for her biography. She's famous for her art. She's also famous for her fiery personality. And in the introduction, you write with admirable candor that, you know, quote, it's very possible that Frida Kahlo might have detested the idea of this very book. What made you write that? You know, I thought a lot about what Frida would think about the times that we're living in, what she would have thought of social media, what she would have thought of how her image and her work have both been distilled and watered down in many ways. She might have either looked at that in a good way or a bad way. It's maybe she would be proud that her legacy has lived on the way that it has, but then she also might have not been a fan of the fact that all the things that she went through and the work that she created are now t-shirts and notebooks and all of these different things. You know, obviously I ended up writing the book and I hope that she would have liked the fact that it was more of an ode to her life and how it can inspire other people to be just as bold as she was, but it was really interesting to think about how she would have thought about just the way her ideals and her life and her legacy as an artist, the, they've taken on this other life that was far beyond what it was when she was actually alive. So clearly this book comes from the, the standpoint that her life is exemplary, that it provides a real source of inspiration for people in trying to live their own lives. What are some things about her that make her an inspiration and what are just a few of the lessons that you map out in the book? I don't want anyone to take this book as like, we should emulate Frida or that she was perfect in any way. You know, even for instance, her relationship with Diego, it was quite complicated and quite toxic. But I think that 
to me, the biggest lesson was she lived her life the way that she wanted to. She didn't care about other people's opinions. Talking about Diego, for instance, or her family called Diego the elephant to her dove because he wasn't traditionally attractive. And um, people had a lot of thoughts about their relationship and the age difference and the fact that he had been married three times, but she didn't care. She, she loved him. She was very passionate about their relationship. And similarly with her art, she never let any outside influences deter her from the kind of art that she created. You know, at that time, the only painters who were getting so graphic with their artwork or diving so deep into how our bodies can also reflect the pain that we feel emotionally, that wasn't something that women were doing as painters. And I think that's one of the biggest lessons. And the other one, which is very similar, is one of the last paintings that she painted at the end of her life she wrote the message on it, Viva la Vida, or Long Live Life, or Live Your Life. It's just incredible to me when I think about the fact that this artist who, again, had this horrible trolley accident, ended up having her leg amputated, had so many illnesses, life threw her so many obstacles. She had a husband who cheated on her with her sister, and they had such a roller coaster marriage. I mean, she wasn't able to have children. She had countless miscarriages. All of these obstacles thrown her way, and yet at the end of her life, the message that she had and the words that she left behind for the world was, was live your life or long live life. I mean, you made a beeline to the Diego Rivera problem. You know, when, when looking at her life as an example of how to do things, that's a little bit of a red flag because it was not the ideal marriage. She once said, I suffered two grave accidents in my life. One in which a bus knocked me down. The other accident is Diego. Are there any lessons in there that people can take away today that aren't freighted by the toxicity of that relationship? You know, as part of my research, I did a lot of reading of her letters and also I read Diego's biography and I read, you know, her journals. And I think one thing that I can admire about their relationship is that it it seems like they always had a mutual respect for each other as artists no matter what was happening in their marriage and their relationship, that was one thing I think that really remained intact. Imagine being with somebody and they cheat on you with your sister and still saying something nice about their artwork. (laughs) But, you know, they both were so passionate about their craft and their creativity. So I think that is probably the one thing that we can look at and say, through it all, they, they managed to, I think, remain colleagues and friends in the art world and to still uplift one another and, and respect one another's work in a way that, you know, I think it's because neither one of them could deny that the other was incredibly talented. So I wonder, of all of these things, how does this marriage, how does her reaction to his infidelities and, and the way that she chose to live her life, how does that square with her reputation as a, as a feminist standard bearer? That is a really good question. I mean, listen, she definitely, especially early on, I, re- I talk about this in the book, was really seeking to try to be more of the traditional idea of what a Mexican wife should be. She was bringing him lunch. She was trying to dress a certain way. But I think that as time went on, we can see through her art and also just through her letters and her messages that she, even though she forgave him for what most of us would say were unforgivable things and a lot of her life was defined by their relationship, she also at the same time managed to maintain her own identity and always spoke up for her own self. One of my favorite quotes, it was early on, she had just started really, you know, Diego was still the the big star at this time. I want to say this was in the early 1930s and they got off of a plane and there was a reporter who asked, you know, about 
Diego's art and, and how she felt as his wife about his art. And she said something along the lines of, you know, Diego does pretty well for a little boy, but it, it, but it's I who am the great painter. And, you know, it's those kinds of stories where I think obviously at the time being Mexican, being a woman, given the fact that we're talking about the 1930s, I do think that there was still some very traditional roles that she was filling as a woman. But I think she also, in moments like that, it's where you see that, I mean, that's almost unthinkable if you think about like, you know, a Mexican woman at that time to say something like that to a reporter and to make those kinds of statements. I think that's where we really see that she she really was pushing boundaries for women and for herself as a woman. And I think she was breaking barriers as to what that mold should or could look like. So the title for the book is What Would Frida Do? And that's, you know, pretty clearly it's a riff on what would Jesus do, the the kind of, you know, broad culture religious meme. And in a sense, that's incredibly apt because both of these figures get their inspirational status in large part because of their suffering. And Frida has suffered greatly for her entire life, you know, up to the very end when she had her first solo show in Mexico City. She had to be brought to the show in an ambulance. She partook in the festivities from her sickbed. What role does her suffering play in her kind of her inspirational power today? Oh, wow. I mean, her suffering was such a big part of her story. And I think that's also a big part of her art. I don't know if there is a single painting of Frida's that I can think of where there's not some kind of nod to her suffering. And I think that's a big part of why her art has stood the test of time. Because again, it's even in a self-portrait where Frida might look beautiful or she might be wearing, you know, beautiful traditional Mexican earrings and flowers in her hair. And then maybe there's a monkey on her shoulder, but there's always a deeper meaning there. It's either the pain in her eyes or it's the fact that her monkeys were almost like surrogate children for her because she couldn't have kids herself. Or one of my favorite paintings of hers is called The Broken Column. And you know, she's standing and she looks really beautiful. Her hair is just kind of flowing in the wind and she's nude and, but she has needles all over her body and kind of her body is cracked open to see inside of her. But instead of a a spine, there's a column that's breaking and there's just little tears falling down her face. And that painting, I, I just can stare at for so long because you can see just how beautiful she is and how beautiful her spirit was and how beautiful she might've been on the outside. But it's, She's like she's sending us a message that the suffering was just constantly there. And there's always, she was always with a, a constant pain. In the book, you call her one of history's most iconic women. And I wonder, what, what do you mean by iconic? What, what is she an icon for? I think she's an icon for opening the door for women to be more vulnerable and to be more open about their own suffering, as we were just talking about. I think a painting like Henry Ford Hospital, where she is depicting on canvas the fact that she had a miscarriage. I mean, think today in 2020, women having miscarriages and going through the experience of losing a child is still not something that women are openly talking about. It's still not something that we're encouraged to discuss. It's still kind of like the secret. And so the fact that back in the 1930s, Frida was painting this on canvas in such a raw, graphic manner is really astonishing when you think about it but it's also that she does have such an incredible life story. And it's a reason why we're still talking about her more than 60 years after her death is it's not just her art. It's also her story. It's also the way that she broke boundaries. It's also the way that she had with words, which those words from her journals and her diaries are the same quotes that we now 
see all the time on social media. And it's turned her, I think, into an icon in that she teaches us so many lessons today about how to live a bold life and to also live a life that's full of a lot of meaning that may be left behind after you're gone. So Frida Kahlo is probably the most famous female artist in the world. And you write that what you call freedomania has been in full swing around the world since the 1990s. What happened in the 90s? Why then? Yes, it was interesting. In LA and in on the West Coast, her image became associated with rights for the Mexican-American, like the 80s and, and into the 90s. There were also some exhibits where her work started to come back around and it started to make its way from not just America, but to exhibits in Japan. And she also became a big symbol for women's rights around this time too. So it was kind of this perfect storm of just her and her story and also its meaning when it came to her art really falling in line with different movements that were starting to happen around the country. And then by the 90s, another thing that happened around that time was Madonna is a big Frida super fan. And this was like the peak Madonna era. And a lot of her wardrobe and her costumes for her shows, she was paying homage to Frida. And she talked a lot about how much she loved her artwork. I think, I know she purchased My Birth and I can't remember what the other one was, but she purchased two of Frida's paintings for like an insane amount of money. And she used to tell people, you can't be my friend if you're not a fan of Frida's My Birth painting. Um, So there was a lot of things that started to happen, I think around the 90s that really kind of elevated Frida to this symbol of like a badass woman who is fighting for their rights and unapologetic about who they are. Can you give me an instance of a time where you've applied a lesson from Frida Kahlo's life in your own life? Yeah, I've thought a lot about Frida during this time when everyone was like at home and there was so much uncertainty and anxiety. And, you know, the fact that she spent so much time alone in her bed, healing, stuck at home, not able to go anywhere, not able to do anything. And that might sound a little cliche, but I think that the title of this book, What Would Frida Do, really has stuck with me in that I've had some moments where I'm either feeling really down or I'm doubting myself or I'm having a work drama or something's going on in my life. And sometimes this question would just pop into my head of like, what would Frida do? There's been a lot of times where I felt really unmotivated. I felt very just generally blah because, you know, I'm spending so much time at home. I'm used to getting up every day and commuting to my job, working in the glamorous first tower and living this like awesome New York life. And now things are just extremely different. So when I think about Frida, I think about the fact that she would have channeled all of those feelings, all of the sadness and the depression and the anxiety and all of the the negative things, she would have channeled that into creativity. Now, another of history's most iconic women is a a one-named wonder, also like Frida. And and here I'm talking about Oprah. (laughs) (laughs) So you work for Oprah as as the digital director of O Magazine. Yes. Do they have anything in common? Oh, wow. This is the first time I've gotten this question. The thing that immediately comes to mind of what Frida and Oprah have in common is authenticity. I think one of the things that really struck me the most about the first time I met Oprah and the many times that I've had, you know, the the honor of working with her through my career and working for her magazine and now leading the website for this magazine is who Oprah is on TV is who she is in real life. She lives by this idea of not just living your best life, but also living an authentic life and being true to who you are. Something that she talks a lot about is one of the keys to her success is through many years of the Oprah Winfrey show, she could have tried to change her hair or she could have tried to change the way that she speaks or do many things during a time when 
you know, people who were hosting TV shows were white, were not people who looked like Oprah Winfrey. And she stayed very true to who she was. She always followed her gut. And I think that that's why so many people and women in particular really relate to her because they see that she's real and that she, you know, that she is herself. And I think that that reminds me a lot of Frida and what we were discussing earlier is that Frida was always, you know, she was Frida. She was, she had the unibrow, she had the facial hair, she, you know, had these very extreme ideals. She didn't mind, you know, putting her husband down to be like, no, no, I'm the, I'm the artist here, like not just him. She was very authentic in who she was and on her own terms. And so I think <laughs> that to me is, is the, the similarity I see in the both of them. You know, what I'd see as maybe one point of divergence is that Frida really, you know, was exceptional at, at sharing her own pain with, with other people, while Oprah is really, you know, exceptional at sharing the pain of other people. But also I would argue too, you know, Oprah had, was, I think another thing that was relatable about her, especially on the Oprah show, is she's always been open, you know, about her own story. She's opened up about her struggles with weight. She's opened up about her own insecurities through the years and her own journey and the difficult childhood that she had and her her difficult relationship with her mother. And that's something that she's continued to do even beyond the Oprah show, but in, in our magazine and also now, you know, on, on our website. And so it's interesting that you bring that up because I do think that they do maybe share that in common and that I think they've both broken barriers for women and encourage women to be more vulnerable and to be more open and to talk about their pain as opposed to just always hiding it. Well, I am very glad that I asked that question. So I'm going to end on a, on a, a kind of a, a, a quirky one. So Halloween is coming up and I was interested to find in your book that there are two legitimately spooky facts about Frida Kahlo. And, and one is that when her body was entering the crematorium after her death, her corpse actually sat up because of the heat and appeared to smile as her hair caught fire, which created this corona of flames around her head. Yep. So a little bit scary. And then the other one is that docents at the Museo Frida Kahlo in Mexico City, which is located in her former house, the, the Casa Azul, told you that her ghost haunts the premises. What do they say exactly? Yeah, it's. I actually kind of asked them because it was something that I had come across a few different times in my research. And I think it was mentioned in one or two different biographies where it's kind of this piece of like Frida lore that has carried on through the years. It's almost like a fact, like, yeah, her spirit is definitely still very present at La Casa Azul. And so when I was there, I asked one of the docents if there was any truth to that. And he literally was just like, yeah, like he's like, I've never seen it, but there's definitely people who work here who have seen it over the years. And we all know that her spirit is here. And he was saying that one docent, I don't think he works there anymore, but Someone used to say that it almost looked like some of the clothing of hers that was there later at night. It would seem almost as if it was filled by this imaginary body. So I don't, you know, of course, it's obviously everything's taken with a grain of salt and it could just be all part of the the legacy and the lore. But it was really interesting to me that it wasn't necessarily the only story of Frida's spirit kind of lurking far beyond her death. And one thing I will say is that I... I really genuinely feel that at the museum, at the house where she grew up and where she lived and where her and Diego eventually lived, there's just unquestionably something about her and her essence that feels like it's still there. And I think it, it does have a lot of, of to do with just the fact that her belongings are still there and that they're very much how, as she left them and that you can see her wheelchair in front of 
the canvas with the paints that she used and her bed is still there and her ashes are there. I mean, so many of those things I think contribute to it, but there's something intangible there. I think that feels very much like there's something left of Frida that's still maybe with us. Wow. Well, that's a great, interesting, profound note to leave on. This has been a lot of fun. Thank you for coming on The Art Angle. Of course. Thank you for having me. This was such an interesting conversation. That's it for this week's episode of The Art Angle. If you like what you heard, you can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Also, take a moment to rate and review us. It will help other listeners discover what we're doing. The Art Angle is produced by Tim Schneider and Caroline Goldstein and edited by Nick Long. Thanks for listening and see you next week. Bye.